so my best friend's brother, like almost a month ago, he he passed away uh, from brain cancer. Uh, and my best friend's family is a uh, Chinese, Indonesian, Javanese slash Batakanese uh, plus Catholic. So when I watched the online, uh, I don't know what you call it in English. Is it funeral procession? Not funeral per se, because here after someone passed away in the hospital, you can rent a like a like a building facility it's that they have a funeral to, a home, of, right? Yes, funeral homes. So I watched the the ceremony, the Catholic mass online, and because then, of COVID, that's why it's online. Yes, also because they didn't want to wait for their relative to come to Samarang to bury uh, to cremate the brother. Mm. So they just want to have it mm. like right away. So me and my other best friend, we watched this online and we saw two watermelons. So at the bottom of the coffin, there's like flower and two watermelons. And we were just like, what is that thing? And because she's yeah. Chinese Indonesian and she was like, is it a Japanese thing? And I was like, no, I thought it was like a Chinese thing. And mm. she said, okay, maybe it's Chinese Java thing. So mm-hmm. we didn't know and we didn't ask our best friends because we just don't want to bother her. And then when we met our other best friend who is uh, Chinese so Manado. Yes, <laughs> it's Chi- Chinese Medan. He was like, oh, no, no, that's a Chinese. It's a very Chinese Indonesian thing. The next day on the way to the cremation house, they're going to break the watermelons as a way of saying we're like separating our world. Or like the way of saying goodbye. Huh. Wait, so the watermelon is under the coffin. And then when they transport the coffin from the funeral home to the cremation uh, site, um, like they break it in the car or like what? I think it's just to break it or like, you know, just like a break it as a symbol. Maybe outside the outside the building. Or uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly. So so the coffin, underneath the coffin, there's like a special, um, kind of like a special place, a special cradle to put the watermelons. So they put the the coffin on the table, like, like a table. So there's, you can see the floor and on the floor, there are like flowers and the two watermelons. Uh, yeah. That's so interesting. But yeah, but my best friend said if it's not watermelons, you use like uh, pineapples, basically like tropical fruit. Oh, why tropical fruit? I thought watermelon because it's round and the world is round. So you like break the, you know, like you said, break the world. Yeah, he said he he didn't know. He didn't know the answer, but usually, yeah, which is Uh, interesting. I see. Wow, that's so... Yeah, this is the first time I've heard of it, and I find it so interesting. So what if they cannot find a watermelon or pineapple? Why do you mean you can find pineapple and watermelons anywhere here? I guess that's true. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm just like, what if? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, the the only like Indonesian, or I guess this is not Indonesian, but it happens in Indonesia that um like a a funeral practice um tradition that i know of is like the muslim when you have to uh bury the body 
mm-hmm. like right like, away on right day. right away basically um yeah. so so they cannot stay overnight um i can't yeah. imagine the pressure you know like right yeah. you have to buy the land organize you know the the cemetery the workers bur- to dig the burial and also like the family like what if they're a family like far in far places who like can't yeah they can't i mean they visit. can't come after after this buried but yeah. it's different maybe and also okay so speaking of burial it's interesting that you said your friend is catholic but then they cremate the body because um is it like isn't catholic um like from dust to dust like that that's the belief right mm. from dust well, to dust her family is kind of like my family we're, we're kind of like a modern catholic family and i think also her brother wanted to be cremated instead of you know to be buried i f- I guess like i know a lot of christians who want to be cremated but their family <laughs> it's like <laughs> like they're like when i die this is what i want and their family is like no even when you die you still have to do it our way which is but which is it's very unrealistic though it's one it's expensive and then who knows in like 20 years they're gonna dig up your body and then build a, an apartment you know what i mean yeah yeah, especially they in Jakarta. So, yeah, I mean, and not just Jakarta; it's like everywhere in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like from yeah. our last episode, but also a new discovery that I had from our conversation with Milian in this episode, where she mm-hmm. said, uh, "When you cook offerings for the dead in Buddhism, you cook yeah. rice. You can't cook noodles yeah. <laughs> because, um, because." noodle well you'll have to listen to the episode because it's so interesting <laughs> shall we introduce her yeah Dimelian Nguyen is a visual storyteller, lens-based artist, supper club host, and food artist from Switzerland. As a visual storyteller, she takes on photographic and multimedia projects with a focus on social and transcultural questions with a personal narrative. Her image-making practice, often using ethnographic methods, are focused on issues of identity, migration, diaspora, and community. She questions dynamics within families and transcultural communities, working with themes such as folklore, traditions, food, and its social impact within diasporas. As a food artist, she takes pleasure in preparing and hosting culinary experiences focused on the transcultural identity. And in 2020, she created Millie's Supper Club to reflect the food experiments and findings. Food and the way of preparing food have a deep root in her migrant family story. Growing up in a Vietnamese household in Switzerland, she got the Vietnamese food culture, all the tips, tricks, and recipes handed down by her own mother and grandmothers. To Mylin, the three strongest and most resilient women she knows. So, was the Viet Lao your first project? Or the uh, with love and respect. Well, the the Viet Lao project came before I, I did that in uh, I think it was two thousand sixteen, mm-hmm. um, and it was actually part of my studies. And at that time, I also started to be interested in my family's background and my family's history. I've always been interested, but I think it was a more um, conscious interest. And I traveled to, to Laos for the first time with my mom to her hometown for, I think, for 
three weeks we went. I took my camera with me and I thought I would take images, but somehow I ended up uh, producing a little film (laughs) where I uh, interviewed the old lady, which is um, not directly a a relative of mine, but we are somehow like family because after um, the flat of my family, she was looking after the house and other people we knew. And so she is considered family. So it was very, very interesting to to hear her speak about her living and and was very open to me and to my questions Mm -hmm. and also to my kind of naive way Mm -hmm. of seeing their world and my world and the differences. And I think now I would pursue the questions or the work differently. But at that time, I I am very happy that the people um, I met were so open to explain explain so much things to me I didn't understand. So your family moved to Europe in what, late 60s, 70s or 80s? They came to Switzerland in 79, mm. but they were before were in a refugee camp in Thailand, close to the border from Laos, mm. I think for two or three years. So I think they fled in 70. So your your mother is from Laos, and then they fled Laos and stayed at the refugee camp near Thailand. And then your father is from Vietnam. Is is that is that it? That's that's correct. Yeah. Uh, well, it's always it's I always um, put emphasis on that my mom's family is also Vietnamese, but they are, um, yeah, they, they lived and uh, were born and raised in in Laos. Mm. There's like a very big Vietnamese community there. And as I heard from my grandmother that her mother uh, fled with her when she was a baby from Vietnam, from the central part, because there were also um, economic, um, how I say, problems and and famine. And um, they had struggled. So many Vietnamese people from the central part fled to Laos. And so, it's actually very interesting because, like, even in even in Vietnam and even in Laos, um, we we talked to a Lao uh, guest before, and she was saying that like how the ethnic makeup in Laos, like it used to be like forty percent Lao Lom, and like now mm-hmm. it's like ninety percent Lao Lom because a lot of the ethnic minorities mm-hmm. have have gone out, um, and then like in Vietnam, like I think. From what I understand so far, it's like a lot of the Hmong and the Mien mm-hmm. um, ethnic groups have also escaped. Um, so um, I, I'm very interested in this dynamic, and I mm-hmm. and I wonder if you can talk more about the Viet Lao dynamic in mm-hmm. Vietnam and Laos. So it it was very interesting for me to. When, when we arrived there and that and then I saw this reality because I, I've never been able to really make up a picture when my mom told me about um, her childhood in Laos but she always said we are Vietnamese and I was like yeah but isn't it why do you put so much um, emphasis on mm. on that we are Vietnamese and throughout my childhood, I, I've always had these um, little observations or remarks from the other part of the family, from my paternal side, about my accent. So my language, my Vietnamese accent is neither Southern Vietnamese, nor is it 
really uh, northern, nor is it really central, because it's mixed mixed up for uh, from the central to Viet Lao people. So we sometimes have Laotian um, words in our uh, language, and I didn't even know that. Mm. So when we <laughs> were uh, at my father's family and I thought something, they were sometimes laughing or like, um, smiling a little bit, and I did not even know that I was not using a Vietnamese word. So th- those kind of mm. um, happenings or situations showed me <laughs> that I did not know that much. So I started asking questions and paying more attention and realized that um, in our food habits, from my home, from my family's mom's home, it's also a little bit different where we use um, other ingredients which typical Vietnamese people wouldn't use in this t- Vietnamese dish because we got uh, influenced by by the Laotian people using um, the lime leaves in, in different dishes. And I, I realized that it's not that Vietnamese people don't use it, but I think they don't use it as much mm-hmm. as uh, as we now use it. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me like... Um, my friend was telling me like uh she she's like uh ethnic chinese indonesian and she was telling me how like some people made fun of her because there were some phrases that is um like hokkien which is like a like um like an ethnic uh-huh. um and she didn't realize it mm-hmm. growing up like she had used that phrase which is a very hokkien thing to do mm-hmm. until she was like talking to people who were not f- surrounded mm-hmm. by that community growing up and they're like oh my god like you say that that's so weird but yeah i think um it's it's very interesting like the the linguistic influences um that like sort of trickle through yeah yeah definitely and i was also really impressed by uh how they well it's it's my it was my perception at that time but how they kind of coexisted like the Vietnamese culture next to the Laotian because then mm. I, I perceived my family very Laotian but at the same time Vietnamese and their neighbors were Laotian and it was like it doesn't really matter somehow but at the same time everyone is doing their thing and everyone lets the other people doing their thing mm. and I sometimes start to um, compare or try to find the proper comparison to um, to a community in Switzerland which which also somehow lives or co-lives like mm. that without um, censoring the one or the other and there's no minor nor majority um, and I sometimes found myself comparing um, the Italian community in Switzerland mm-hmm. um, I think um, it, Italy and Switzerland also have a, have a history mm-hmm. of uh, bringing uh, workers to Switzerland in the 60s. And, mm-hmm. um, and there are many, many here in Switzerland now, but there's still um, some kind of, it's still separated somehow. Like there's this house for uh, Italian community and the majority is Swiss. And that's, I didn't feel like that in in Laos Mm. when I saw the Vietnamese community with the Laotian people. Mm. Mm. But why Europe, though? My family. Why they decided to go to Europe? Yeah. Um, Well, I did. 
I think they didn't really decide it on their own. So as I told you before, they fled Laos because of the consequences of, of the war mm -hmm. and um, communism. And um, and from there, it was like uh, all some Western countries were telling like, okay, we, we take five families now. And Switzerland was open, so they took my family in. So I also have family in, in France or in America or in Germany. So it was not up to them to, to really decide where to yeah, go. Yeah. So it was a spot open and uh, they took it. So more like that, I think. And uh, when they came to Switzerland, as they told me, they, they first went into like a, um, how you say, where uh, refugees first arrive. Like a like a house where many other families also are, and they are a have, transitional uh, home. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. And they also started to learn um, German and like how to eat with knives and forks <laughs> and all that mm -hmm. manners stuff, uh, which will make you survive <laughs> uh, Switzerland. <laughs> I can say I can say like I've I've lived in the US for almost almost 15 years and I still don't eat with knife and fork. I still eat with like a spoon and fork. <laughs> yeah, same. Not even a steak. I mean, um, I guess when you have to cut a steak, but otherwise Yeah, no, you usually you cut it with the scissors and then you serve mm. it to the food to the people where they can eat with knives oh. and forks and chopsticks. <laughs> so I, I see why why we do it like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Like Korean barbecue, they cut it with yeah, scissors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, so my family was there for I think three months and then they there was a chance to go, which is I think unusual uh, they got an offer to 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 move in into a very beautiful house in the very very countryside of Switzerland uh, which is known for its countryside and mountains mm -hmm. and cheese so very cheesy uh, cliche <laughs> and cheesy and also politically seen um, always a little bit or no one of the most right-winged um, uh, locations in Switzerland if you look at the votes and right. yeah because mm -hmm. it's in the countryside normally in the countryside yeah so if, if you imagine I don't know what kind of image you have from Switzerland <laughs> what do you imagine in Switzerland <laughs> white <laughs> that's white what you mean like snow mind. or yeah. people <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, and also they they don't like to take sides right so it's just, <laughs> well, I, the, I feel like when I imagine Switzerland it's like it's like mountains and like lakes and kind of like the your the the photo the primary photo of for love and respect yeah that is like the what comes to mind when I think of Switzerland <laughs> yeah and and, and it, that is Switzerland but there's also other um, Switzerland but that's kind of the the image I think abroad from Switzerland. This, uh, yeah. But what about you? How would you describe Switzerland? Uh, very diverse, in terms of that. There's this image, as we just said about nature, mountains, mm -hmm. 
and, uh, and, and cows and cheese and chocolate and all these cliches. But at the same time, there are many, many other parts of Switzerland which are not like that, uh, also in the cities. And I think that's what Switzerland for me this um, very diverse and very many different kind of cultures uh, in, on such little space put together. That's kind of Switzerland. I mean, we are very, very small, but we still have 26 different little uh, cantons, like districts mm. or provinces, wow, you can yeah. say. Yeah. And each uh, canton has its own history and its own culture and um, own food. <laughs> and so it's, and we are all very proud of that. So if we go to a gathering and, and we get to know each other, there's always a talk about where your dialect comes from. And mm. then there's also this hierarchy of, okay, you're from the Eastern part, your dialect is ugly. But if you're from the um, main uh, city, then it's a very beautiful accent. So it's, yeah, that's Switzerland for me. <laughs> you you said that you have family who are also in Germany and also in the United States. And do you observe any differences between between your families who are spread in these places, but also the Vietnamese diaspora, because when I first came to the States, like I lived in Washington state and the West coast of the U S I think has like a really big Vietnamese diaspora from um, when they came here in like the, the sixties and seventies. Um, and it's almost like, there's this like stereotype that like the Vietnamese diaspora in the States, they end up owning nail salons or working in like a, a salon type of industry. And then in Germany, from what I understand, the Vietnamese diaspora end up working with flowers, like they sell flowers and have a flower business. Um, and I wonder, I don't know, like in Switzerland, how how is the Vietnamese diaspora there? Um... There is definitely a Vietnamese diaspora in Switzerland. There are many, many people in different cities. Uh, and there are a few cities which have a bigger community than others. But in comparison to the diaspora in Germany, which I also somehow got uh, or experienced through my relatives from my father's side, they are in Germany, and also in France, I think it's you cannot compare it because we are so small here in Switzerland. I think at that time in the phase after the war, during the many, many um, refugee fled their country, Switzerland took in about, I don't know, I think 10,000 people. And since then the community grew, but it's nothing compared to to, I don't know, America, LA, where they have their own little Saigon or in yeah. France where they have the, the quarter, which yeah. many Vietnamese and Chinese people live in or Germany, Berlin and Leipzig where they have these, these centers and the shops and everything. So I think there's not a specific stereotype in Switzerland where you could say um, many Vietnamese people would sell flowers or work in nail salons. But you also see them. You do see some nail salons owned by Vietnamese people. 
and uh, flower shops, not that many. But what you see are, um, as everywhere, I think, a lot of imported goods um, shops, so Asia stores, Asia mm -hmm. shops, and also a lot of um, restaurants and imbises or like takeaway stands uh, where many Vietnamese or Vietnamese Chinese people um, serve their food. Mm. So if you if you would come to Switzerland, I don't think that Vietnam or especially um, the Asian community is very um, visible. Uh, you don't really have a hood where many people are, nor do you have like festivities or something regularly. And I did hear from someone. I I don't know how um, how backed up the reference is, but I. I, I've got to know someone who worked um, as a translator at the time where many Vietnamese people came to Switzerland. And she even told me that at that time, the government or cities or, you know, the bureaucrats were trying to put the families in different um, locations. So they wouldn't be able to even create um, a hood like like little Saigon or little Chinatown or something. Mm -hmm. So they would be better um, integrated into the Swiss population. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't want to judge or anything. I think I, I, I somehow can understand or see their way of why they did that. But at the same time, um, there's, there's always, there are always two sides of something. So I think I can only imagine that there were also families and people who felt very lonely to not being able to connect um, to to other people, and especially in that time where you have such traumatic yeah. um, experiences to to just share your story or to feel less alone or cook together or I don't know. Yeah. So that's that, and at the same time, I feel very um, impressed because. But I've talked with my grandmother about this. I hear from her stories that they are still very connected, even though they all live in different Swiss cities. There was still some kind of network built up where um, where they knew from each other. They spoke from another to each other. And you always knew this family is um, acquainted with that family from that side of switzerland <laughs> and so i i cannot um, understand how they did that because i'm obviously from another generation where we have instant messaging and mails <laughs> but they somehow did it so um that's just so impressive facebook <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> <laughs> no, that they also so they they sold food to each other. Like someone's doing mm -hmm, bows yeah. and then sending. My my grandmother was one of those uh, in in the rural Switzerland. She did her uh, bun bow, the steamed buns, and sent them via post express to the other side wow. of Switzerland, <laughs> so that someone can wow. enjoy the taste of home. And my grandmother was able to make a little sites money so mm -hmm. so did you grow up cooking with your grandma and your mom um depends on what you understand cooking with means <laughs> it i mean helping like cutting chilies <laughs> yeah. no because you have project moi moi right i don't know i'll probably say it said that wrong is it moi moi it's my moi <laughs> 
my my yeah. my ah yeah so in that project you cook for other people right yeah so i'm just curious where you grow up um i did not uh classically grew up cooking with them it was more i think observing and being part of that whole uh food and cooking um experience and i think at this point i find it important to to mention that my family i think every vietnamese household has a very strong connection to food and cooking i think that's just very much not only vietnamese i think most um cultures actually not only Asians um have a strong yeah. connection yeah. to foods and preparing it um but that why I'm saying this in my family food was was very very um important because my paternal side um they were some kind of a wedding catering service to Vietnamese diasporas mm -hmm. in Europe so they my grandmother like um founded this and cooked for hundreds. No wonder she has such a big connection. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how they did that. They were just speaking to each other and then she they traveled everywhere with a little van with all the stuff for 500 people and I cannot imagine how they did that. Uh, so food was always around when they cooked for a wedding or two weddings one weekend they were preparing for it months before so we were always surrounded by food and preparing food mm. and my maternal side here in Switzerland um, she was also always preparing stuff just as I mentioned before she was sending or selling um, snacks and always cooking for us and so having people around always doing something cooking something was very normal for me so I grew up in a surrounding where cooking and and touching and eating and sharing was always around and that's why I how I learned it I think it was not a classic way of okay this is how you do it and then she watched me doing it and I did it right or wrong so it was very much more on being part of it and living it not even doing like the the main cooking just um, preparing the chopsticks or putting the plates out and then while eating my mom sometimes or always actually um commented something like yeah in this dish it's very important to put detail on this one and pay attention to that so like the little remarks mm -hmm. <laughs> which were yeah, yeah, yeah. very conscious I think but somehow mm -hmm. if you have this every day I think you learn it uh, by hearing and seeing mm -hmm. uh, and that's how I actually learned cooking by just watching and being being part of it or of that um, environment mm -hmm. somehow so the, the the performance or the installation was about this very um, traditional uh, ritual in our Vietnamese culture. It's it's called gum. Uh, I don't know if you know it. It's about cooking, preparing dishes, and then honoring uh, the, the cook. Yeah, for example, also the death or on specific um, events as New Year or if you wish for luck or something, you also put yeah. fruits there. And uh, it was about that kind of uh, ritual. So at that time, my grandfather uh, of my maternal side also passed away. So it was also somehow um, my way of trying to uh, contribute or invite him 
over or it was also about thinking on how we can as second generation um, live our traditions and rituals which my parents and my grandparents conveyed to me but not like very strict on how you actually do it because I think it's it's not always possible because living in Switzerland doesn't give me a day off on New Year so I cannot go after all the traditionals you need to do on New Year because I need to work during the day because the majority does not believe in Chinese New Year. So struggling with these kind of questions or how you can live your culture and traditions uh, currently to, to the life where you are um, geographically. So I thought I was not able to really conduct all the rituals and traditions as it is asked for um, after my grandfather passed. So I thought, okay, um, this whole ritual and gesture was about honoring the the deceased, to invite the deceased and the, my grandfather to, to dinner. And also maybe he might bring guests also. And I thought, okay, when maybe he brings guests, I could bring guests as well. <laughs> So, um, so I was like, yeah, I will cook here. And then I did this performance to see what people were open for a conversation. It was really interesting. And people were joining in. And then when I finished the table with all the prepared dishes, um, I asked the visitors to take part as well. So I explained them what this ritual was about. And, uh, and I invited them to also invite their deceased um, grandparents or friends or acquaintances, beloved ones. Mm. So they could all join in with my grandfather. So they also have some kind of dinner party in the ghost world, I imagine, somehow. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. uh, (laughs) So that's that's what I did. And it was was really, really nice to see the many people... um, all taking the incense stick and watching me first how I did it and then they tried to or they did it as well it was also interesting for me to see how they did it because they obviously uh, didn't pay attention to some specific details I was taught to from my parents Mm. because they didn't know it but it was also okay because I felt yeah they do it like they do it and that's nice that they're even doing it (laughs) And uh, taking time to think of of the deceased and invite them to dinner somehow. I love that. <laughs> so that that was the performance. So, what kind of Vietnamese food did you cook for this project, Mai Mai? Um, I cook different dishes, and it's usually a, a rice dish you prepare for these kind of occasions. Um, My cousin told me you do not prepare the noodle soups with the rice vermicellis, bun is it called in Vietnamese? Why? Because they say, it's it's something they say, they say that the lost ghosts uh, would, um, how you say, cruel about about the food and then it would be easy to, to... that the, the noodles get torn apart. So it's always important to um, serve rice dishes and not noodle dishes. Wait, so so they <laughs> will fight about food, but then if it's rice, uh, they're not going to fight about it? 
They're gonna fight about it, but the rice doesn't break. Okay. The noodles break apart, and that's like that's bad luck or something. So... Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. <laughs> interesting, right? Oh. Yeah. Okay, okay. So yeah, so I did a rice dish, and usually um, when you do it at temple, it's all vegetarian, and I also did it uh, vegetarian slash um, vegan. And there were uh, like uh, um, how do you say braised like a braised menu where I braised vegetables and eggplants mm-hmm. and tofu and vegetarian sausage and there was uh, stir fry vegetables and there was a tofu dish and there was a soup of course to every rice dish. So soup. is there a reason it has to be vegetarian? Um, well, in, in Buddhism we say that um, right you you, you don't uh, uh, hurt animals. Or any other lives, uh, and that's why in temple kitchen it's always vegetarian. Okay, okay. Somehow. But th- that's a very good question because there's these rituals on New Year's, for example, on Chinese New Year's or Lunar New Year's. Sorry, I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> uh, Lunar New Year. Um, there's also a tradition that you serve a cooked chicken. So it's not everything religious mm. or religiously, spiritually. I think because there are different kind of yeah Buddhism. Um, my Buddhist friends and my Buddhist family, like they eat so much meat. That's why it didn't register in my mind um, <laughs> that it was a uh, religious. I think I was just talking about this the other day with my friends who sort of Buddhist. I mean, his family is Buddhist, and he told me that they're kind of there is this type of Buddhism that eat meat. That they're not vegetarian. That's a lot. I, I forgot what it's called, but yeah. Well, there are different streams yeah, so. of uh, of Buddhism, yeah. and I think the stream most Vietnamese people are part of. I think Mahayana. I'm not. I'm not Mahayana. Mm. Yeah, ah, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think it's that stream. They say that you do not kill, so you do not hurt um, lives. So they are convinced uh, vegetarians. And that's why it's very interesting to see in Vietnamese food culture or habits also that it's actually very um, vegetarian friendly. So tofu, for example, is, I think that you guys know that, um, it's not actually as the Western perceives it as a substitute for meat, but it was always uh, its own food components so there are vietnamese dishes where you feel oh, they're not mixed yeah the, you, you even feel tofu with meat in it and then cook it in tomatoes tomato sauce mm. or something so it's not um oh my god there's an indo food le- like that too <laughs> and i'm craving it so much now that you mention it <laughs> it's, so oh, it's so good <laughs> what do you call it in indo um which one it's like the tofu so when you put tofu. meat on the inside you stuff it with meat, yeah, right? Yeah, you stuff it with meat. Oh, I mean, there's... Yeah, I don't know. Don't. Ah, oh, I forgot. But that's... <laughs> I, I think that's also another Indo-Indonesian food that, that is kind of influenced by, like, the Hokkien um, Chinese. Oh, yeah? Uh-huh. Um, I'm trying to think what it's called, but I forgot the name. <laughs> so I make on tofu. This, there are two things I... I found so interesting to see when this whole vegetarian vegan yeah, um, me too. trend came up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my when, god, I'm I'm vegetarian and I'm always angry every time they go. Or how okay. they use it. Like yeah. that the, the meaning or the usage of tofu in this uh, trend or 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 stream is usually for a substitute 
Yeah. And that's so underrated for yeah. tofu because it's not a substitute. It's its own thing. <laughs> Same with soy milk. Yeah. Like soy milk is like yes. uh, a thing yeah, um, in Indonesia. And I remember there's this place in North Jakarta where it's a it's a store that's like specialty for soy so they make everything soy like they have um tofu bread mm. they have tofu like fried tofu they have boiled tofu and then they have like all kinds of like soy milk oh that sounds delicious it's so good like it's a soy specialty store and i miss yeah. it so much but i remember when soy milk started becoming a substitute for dairy i was like wait yes. like what the fuck that's, like, that's not a substitute right yeah, I tried one of the of the substitutes, uh, milk, so to say, and it was really not good. And I was like, "No, guys, what kind of milk? soy milk from like a Swiss uh, oh. retailer." And yeah. and I I thought, okay, this is nice. Everyone is drinking soy milk, and then I I drank it and was like, "No, guys, soy milk is different." Oh, yeah, different. They, don't, they don't taste like soy soy milk, right? It's no. like it's also very. Yeah. Thin, I feel like yes. real soy milk is like thicker, and you can yes. taste the texture, and, and it's, it can be very creamy yes. somehow. Yeah, and also that distinct, like distinct taste of yeah. soy. Mm-hmm. I think Definitely. you cannot lose it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, so you actually um, focus a lot on food in your work then because you also have you're currently working on the project food for the dead is that connected to the my my project mm-hmm. definitely definitely the the food for the dead is uh, is a series a photographic series at the moment it can change i think but i started that i think two years ago where i uh, or one and a half where i started to be interested in those rituals and those traditions where we how much it means for us to to cook dishes, to spend hours in the kitchen and then to um, offer them to our ancestors. And I think that the the whole journey or the whole start of the series started there. And then I think cooking and food was always some kind of um, bridge or a, a way to get an access or to to build up conversations with different members of my family, also through language barriers. And there was not much we could talk about because I didn't have the vocabulary and food was always, it does work always. And I started this series and also look into how my other grandfather from my paternal side, uh, how everything went when he died uh, 15 years ago. Um, and there's a lot of archive uh, images and footage I looked into, and also this how you um, remember stories and situations, and then how you remember them when you were conscious or or like older or mature, and hear different perspe- perspectives on the story and get more effects to the situation. Mm-hmm. I think everyone can relate to that. And it all came together. And then I started cooking and, and realized I need to share these cookings and findings because eating alone or two people is always more boring than eating with 20 people it's always just much more fun and i think that's how vietnamese food is uh, built up it's something it's 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 a food culture to to be shared 
and it became kind of part of my um, or it always was, I don't know, part of my artistic practice. And I did this performance, the Moi Moi, also to bring all of this together, all these themes and questions and uh, observations and interests I had in. So next to this performance, there were also um, big curtains. I printed them with photographs of mine, which I also kind of wanted to install them to to show this fluidity and these movements of more, my interpretation of being um, of second generation. So you always have this um, fluidity in you that you sometimes change accordingly to the context you're in yeah. or accordingly the people you are surrounded with in your way of behaving, but also in the topics you speak, but also in in the language, in everything, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think there are many second generation or third generation people saying that they separated the sides. So they have this Vietnamese side or the Swiss side. And that's what I was just um, re-questioning that is there a need to really um, separate them or can we somehow create um, a present where we can somehow live both in fluidity and to not deny it but also maybe see a chance into into being able to be so fluid and I started to do these uh, supper clubs where I yeah. I invited people to come over. Really, supper clubs. Yeah. And I think it was also a way of of trying to to solve misinterpretations or mistakes of uh, of what not Asian people perceived of Asian slash Vietnamese food. So I invite them over to eat, but then I also tell them more about this about the food about the preparation about how uh, we in the uh, diaspora in Switzerland started to change uh, different various uh, certain uh, ways of cooking because ingredients were missing or also yeah. for me or my generation it's more important to, to look after how you can even try to cook more seasonal or uh, with local ingredients and uh, just to get a consciousness about these topics and also to discuss them with the people mm. and also to be open for any kind of questions. How do you participate in the supper? Yeah, usually I, uh, there's like, it's, I, I always say it's kind of a concept or so it's not uh, one strict thing how it works, but there's like a classic supper club where I... Um, communicate a date or several dates or an edition i also did a barbecue edition once or a vietnamese brunch um, and then people can sign up i communicate via a newsletter or instagram or personally messaging and then we come together and eat and there are always a mixture of people from different backgrounds and different places they come from I I wonder like when you do Millie Supper Club and the the performances with food for the audience that come to attend is it their first time trying Vietnamese food and what is has there been interesting experiences with people who um have never been exposed to these traditions before um some 
are very familiar with the food because they have been to Vietnam or they have a close friend or they live in Zurich where there are many Vietnamese restaurants which they uh, visit. Um, but there are also other contexts I've uh, served food uh, where people don't really have uh, much contact to Vietnamese cuisine nor to Vietnamese people, like more in a countryside uh, context, I think. And I often face um, a very cliche and stereotype uh, encounters or remarks or topics or conversations like, mm. um, oh, yeah, I was in Vietnam and it was beautiful and uh, the holiday and everything. And they told me everything about the holiday. There was even one time where someone went and got their holiday album which that person did in two months in southeast asia like in all the countries <laughs> like the classic and this like, person is a total stranger yeah I, di i did not know the person before wow and so then she was like And then the person showed me like, yeah, here I, I travel with the motorbike and then I went south and I sold it because I didn't need it anymore. And then I went backpacking and it was really nice because they were so authentic meeting the farmers and yeah, it was very difficult for me. Wow. And I think it, it was very in the beginning of, of my project and I was very confused and did not know how to react to this situation and to the person and no one else saw uh, a problematic in that uh, moment and I cannot take it bad or I, I don't take it as bad because well most people were Swiss or did not have the same uh, or do not have the same reality as I do but then at the same time that's also why I started all this to um, tell them I learned from this experience and I would certainly put a conversation on that the next time I would face such an encounter. Then I would not like get angry or something or even judge them because he doesn't know better. Doesn't make it better, but he doesn't know better. And, uh, and then I would just try to start a conversation on why that's so problematic or how we could do it better or like eye on eye somehow you know what I mean yeah honestly like can I say that that um, story you had about the interaction and how you like at that moment you froze and you kind of didn't know how to react to that I feel like that still happens to me now where you know when sometimes people ask me my background and mm -hmm. then I say and then they I don't know they say some stupid thing like oh yeah like I had an Indonesian girlfriend before or oh, like yeah. or I don't know they say something really silly yeah like just silly things like that and I and I still actually don't know how to respond to that and I actually remember when I was in Indonesia um so I am like ethnic Chinese Indonesian mm -hmm. um and I was with um like a Sunda person and she started Uh, saying like oh you know like my family are traders like it was a very weird conversation where she she told me her whole family history about how they were like traders and they were never like really teachers and she was the first artist in her family 
And it was so weird. And then it was only after that that I realized she was saying that because she was like, oh, like the Chinese used to be traders. And I'm having this conversation with you because oh, you're Chinese. Goodness. It was like really strange. But like, I, I know that feeling where in that mm-hmm. moment where someone like says, gives you something like, hey, look at this. Mm-hmm. And you kind of like don't mm-hmm. know how to say like, uh, mm-hmm. don't show me that or like, don't tell me mm-hmm. that or whatever, because you're kind of just like, okay like you want to still be respectful Mm -hmm. um but yeah yeah, that is like uh, a strange feeling oh i'm so sorry that you had that um, (laughs) no it's just like now i i laugh about it and it's funny (coughs) but i think that's something that a lot of people experience Mm -hmm. and don't really it's you never really know how to yeah to respond to that because it's not like one formula yeah and I think it's um like everything. Everything takes practice. And I thought that needing to understand the mechanism behind it or what really was happening that this person was reducing me to a country which he has a perception of from his um point of view and nothing else. Um so it's it's kind of I not that I feel well, I do a little bit feel sorry because it's if you look at the world like this in every way, that's that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> and I would be very happy to, to if I would ever meet him again to try to uh, encourage him more or speak with him about it and maybe even change a little bit or move something in him, and that would be even enough for me to. Yeah, one change at a time, one person at a time. (laughs) Yeah. Something that I noticed just from having this conversation with you is that even as a second generation, you're still very in touch with your Vietnamese side, your Viet Lao side. And I think that's like really incredible because I see these Indonesian Americans, like they're, they're like half generation like not even one generation and they already lose everything like they don't even have any connection um they don't even speak the language like they wouldn't know all of these traditions with food and everything because basically you know mm-hmm. i don't know if this is just like with diaspora communities in the united states where a lot of the first and second generation people feel like like my family is not able to adapt to the new environment and then they won't let me adapt to the new environment and they want me to live the mm. way they live back when they were still in their home country, mm. blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's really amazing that your family was able to preserve that. Thank you. It it really means a lot that you um, somehow saw that or noticed and um, at the same time, I, I also need to add that it's. I'm also very grateful and thankful that my family kind of preserved or conveyed it to me. But I also need to emphasize that my family, or especially my parents, were very. Um, it was so change and and the work you need to do. It always needs to come from both sides. So if my family would o- only um, be stuck. On, on traditions and how you need to do it as we did it 100 years ago, I think I would maybe even um, deny it because it would be somehow forced or it would feel um, stricted or 
or like like there's no space for you to interpret it the way you want it or the way you want to live it and i think that's what what i'm really grateful for from my family that they somehow convey or give the traditions and the values to me but also leaving me uh, to live them as i feel fit especially my mom i think she encouraged me to embrace it but at the same time it's it wasn't without struggle to arrive at the point where we are at or me but also my family um and i think if you want to have change i think like both sides need to work on it so it was very um i think hard for me but also for for my parents or grandparents side to also talk about it or to let it go or to to stick to a point and but the work i think if this is happening that's already great because something is happening yeah 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 so i'm just saying it it was not just easy or just um like encouraged to embrace both sides it was a real struggle and it's sometimes still so i think it's a process for life <laughs> i guess yeah but yeah, yeah. Is there like a Vietnam or Lao traditions that is for you? Like, oh, no, 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 that is just too much. I'm not going to do it. Uh, you mean a specific ritual or? Yeah, specific, specific like traditions or like me, for instance, I'm Japanese and my parents, they don't, they don't say that I need to uh, fully become Japanese and do all the rituals, but they kind of want to have like a me one day if I get married, like a Japanese wedding. And a Japanese wedding is like seven days of like rituals. And I was like, no, it's just <laughs> why it costs money. Yeah, and I, like, I no, that. I don't think I would have energy. You I know get I mean? that. It's something like that. Yeah, no, I totally get that. <laughs> oh, that's something I think all the ex- we all somehow experience. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, but that's where it happens. So then we would discuss uh, on what you want and what we want and you could either way say no and the other part says no and then we never speak of it again or and I think there are things um, I think now I'm at a place or at a situation or position where I where I found peace somehow I could say with my Vietnamese side and where I feel like I could do it as I would like to but uh, putting attention on to not overstep or uh, ignore the important components of those rituals. Like, for example, uh, for a Vietnamese wedding, I am also thinking about that if I would do that, because that means hundreds of people. And yeah, it's so expensive. <laughs> But at the same time, I mean, what is the Vietnamese Viet- wedding about? It's a, I think also from, it came from the Chinese, the, the, The tea ceremony where your elders mm. meet and speak and you know this very intimate moment of where the bride gets new jewelry of her in-laws and yeah. that's something which which touches me still very dearly this very little moment um so i would be open to do that but i think it would be need to be renegotiated i think And also in terms of my boyfriend is Swiss. <laughs> so if my clan of 
80 people would uh, sit on the one side of the table <laughs> and the other side had, would have like 10 people. It would seem <laughs> so absurd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, I understand. Yeah. But I don't think there's something I would like just say no, I wouldn't do. Because I yeah, I think we already did do things a little bit different than the very, very traditional um, Vietnamese people yeah, would yeah, do. That's, yeah, that's also true, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. funny because when you mentioned the, the necklace, the jewelry exchange ceremony, um, like in Indonesia, like some Chinese Indonesian people do it, but like they've taken away that intimate moment because now it's just like show off of like... <laughs> the most expensive jewelry that you can you know it's like yeah. oh my mother had this jewelry or whatever <laughs> um, like they've taken out the the beauty of the culture and tradition mm -hmm. they just do it for like you know ostentation or is that the new tradition that's the good question is that the <laughs> one that that changed with our zeitgeist of our contemporary with way of capitalism <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no oh. but i think that's also with the with the f back to food again <laughs> with, with the food yeah. so you you can't change a dish and start using different ingredients i do not have anything against it but as long as you somehow try to even appreciate the one thing that like makes the dish original that then it's enough good enough for me i think yeah, I was thinking about this when you said uh, to make food bridge the Vietnamese side and the your Swiss size, uh, your Swiss size, damn Swiss sides. <laughs> Is there any like Vietnamese food that made out with cheese? I mean, in terms of the famous ingredients, is there or because Indonesia, I don't think we traditionally have cheese. Ropang, dude. Like India. <laughs> huh? um, we have roti panggang, which is like cheese yes, and chocolate. The, yeah, but that's influenced by the Dutch and then the Western world, right? But right, the right. Yeah. Traditional one. Yeah, it's not. I like don't think ghee, like, like India, India. India has their own cheese, right? Yeah, I, I think it, I think Vietnamese is is pretty it's the same. We 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 do have like dairy um, ingredients such as uh, condensed milk or um, mm -hmm. these. Uh, cheese triangles uh, which are like in a round carton box with the cow which laughs do you know that one? it's called la vache which translates in the cow which laughs or smiles it, this is a Vietnamese food. No, this is a, this is French. This is oh, French. okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was like, yeah. I thought you were saying like yeah. Vietnamese food. I was like, <laughs> but Vietnamese food culture was very much uh, influenced by the French colonization. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So this um, triangle cheese is like very popular in the in the Vietnamese diaspora. They they call it in Vietnamese the the cow which smiles lavash uh, so. well at least the cow is happy yeah <laughs> <laughs> i know that like because in indonesia when i eat pho like they just serve the pho but then when i started uh when i came to the u.s when they serve pho they serve it with like profiteroles what is that 
uh, cream puffs, ah, um, okay. like shu. Um, and then I was like, wait, why are you, why are you serving me cream puffs with pho? And they said, oh, this is like the French influence of Vietnamese cuisine. But I was like, oh wow, like really, <laughs> yeah. Or maybe this is just a West Coast. Like, oh my God, on the West Coast, when you when you, they serve you pho, they also serve you like cream puffs. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Cream yeah, puffs yeah. with cream in it. Yes, like shoe, like separately, right? Not in the pho, right? Yeah, separately, separately. Okay, I don't know. But they serve one. it at the same time. Oh well, I only know the like the fried breadsticks, the Chinese. Uh, they serve it with pho. Yeah, with pho and other noodle soups, where you <gasps> cut it and then it's like fried. Oh, oh chakwe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you call it chakwe too? We need chakwe. But it's, it's, uh, it's from the Chinese, I think, or which yeah, probably, I like everything. So. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just a West Coast thing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I've never West heard of US. that. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know. I th- uh, if you ask me now how to, if if there would be a dish I do I would not know but I could say that sometimes when I bake like Swiss stuff uh, Swiss desserts or bakeries I sometimes get the ideas of okay how to like translate it into a Vietnamese way and then I, I always have this idea but I have never gone after them but I will someday I will someday. <laughs> You should. Yeah, no, mm. it's, I should. I really should because there are really some really nice Swiss bakeries, um, goods and uh, desserts. Yeah. yeah. So, shall we ask the closing question? Sure. Okay, I'm nervous now. <laughs> <laughs> These are very two important questions out of the whole. <laughs> episode okay we, we all take a sip to drink now <laughs> <laughs> so our very important closing question is is there a food that when you're visiting lao that you miss from switzerland and then when you're in switzerland is there a food that is that you find in vietnam or lao that you miss and you cannot find there that's, that's a very good question, which leads me to another answer. I'm so sorry. <laughs> which I haven't mentioned because um, one thing why I think my family cooked so much in Switzerland, because there's such a little diaspora, is because you had to do everything yourself because you could not buy it anywhere. So that's mm-hmm. why I do everything myself because unlike in Germany, um, there aren't many restaurants which serve tradition, very traditional uh, food or shops or something. So that's mm-hmm. because I, I thought of uh, one dish I enjoyed very, very much in Laos um, because it, it smelled like home because that's a dish I cannot get in Vietnam nor can I get it in a Vietnamese restaurant in Switzerland. And it's called Ban Can. And Ban Can is, uh, maybe you know it, it's a, it's a noodle soup where you have uh, tapioca rice flour noodles, which you make yourself with chicken broth or any other broth, but I prefer chicken broth with that one. And someone could argue that you could you can eat it very well in Vietnam, and I totally agree. There's really good bangan there, but it's done and prepared differently in Laos or by Vietnamese Laos people. Uh. 
And it's interesting why. that you said it smells like home. Yeah, home like my What mom. <laughs> my mom is my home. <laughs> or, or, yes, or regarding food, <laughs> like home is where, and also how they, uh, I don't know the word for it, but in Vietnamese, there's like a, a word for when you season, like when you try the food and then you as adjust it, like more salt mm. or more sugar, but yeah. tasting somehow. And, mm. and I think the tasting from my mom is where my home tasting is. <laughs> So that's why that one noodle soup really got me in Laos. That's what I miss because it's a lot of work to do the noodles and everything. And I don't do it too often, but I sometimes do it myself when I crave too much. And when I'm abroad, I miss about Switzerland. Um, Not very much. No, I do. I, do. <laughs> do. I think I miss dessert. I think I miss dessert. And like, mm. I think there was once when we were in Thailand and we were in this very big um, hotel and I felt like a princess or something at that age. And there was this uh, beautiful confessory bar and they served like beautiful tarts and and cakes and bakery mm. goods like creamy and with whipped cream mm. it was so beautifully made and I really annoyed my mom that I would want to have a slice of this cake or tart and she said no it's not good just trust me on this <laughs> and I was like no I need this I need chocolate <laughs> and then she got me a slice and it was horrible It was so horrible. <laughs> Compared, of course, I grew yeah, up. Yeah, because you tried the original one. Yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah. it's the same. It's like, I think when I go to Southeast Asia, like, I, I'm just like, you can try to make me steak and pasta, but it's not going to taste as good as <laughs> the one that's original. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I'm sure there's probably very good uh, dessert places now. I think that was 15 years ago or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was it was terrible. That experience like showed me I've, I've <laughs> never tasted uh, dairy, uh, chocolatey things in Asia anymore. <laughs> I mean, that, that also says something about like this whole new trend. I mean, I guess it's not new, but in the last, I don't know, like 10, 20 years, in Asia of people trying to uh, make their food westernized mm -hmm. and everything. Mm -hmm. And it's never going to be as good as like how it is. Um, so it's like, I think, I don't know. I'm, I, I think I always tell my friends who want to open restaurants and things like that. It's just like, just be confident with like your own yeah. originality and like your own culture and not try to be something else because you're never going to be mm -hmm. the best of something that's not even you. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not. Before I would agree with well. you, but ever since I came back, my, my uncle, he bought us this uh, waffle. So it's, it's a waffle made out of croissant uh, butter And it's so good. Oh, it does. Croissant <laughs> and butter is always good. <laughs> But in a waffle, like that's also yeah. very interesting. No, how like how huh. these things get mixed up and the yeah. results, new things. 
And this is also so beautiful about, like, I mean, culture in general, but also food culture. I mean, it's kind of boring to just insist on doing it one way and that's the only way. So, because I think culture, food culture is, it's moving. It's something which needs to be moved and developed. So there's results, something new, and then it takes years and ages and hundreds of years again to, be traditional again but if we would just be stuck i think we would not have banh mi or i don't mm, know mm, yeah other yeah, vietnamese delicious dishes <laughs> yeah 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 i i think a lot of things are like fusion now right is that like i feel uh, like fusion is 10 years yeah, ago but, it's like oh. a- <laughs> It's a, it's a big topic i think the uh, fusion i don't know really what i think about this word or this genre of what people perceive as fusion food like there's even a a style which comes into my mind how these restaurants are styled or their corporate design or something (laughs) yeah yeah i think so i don't think it's bad i don't i don't think it's bad to to mix or to try ingredients from another region in, in to another region but I I just find this uh, wording, phrasing of fusion kitchen and also in what time, as you said, 10 years before or something, when it resonated or came into our society, under which conditions and who said fusion, what Mm -hmm. is fusion, Mm -hmm. makes me feel a little bit uh, unwell or I don't feel very well with that word, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of interesting now mm. the the logic behind it. Yeah. Cuz oh. the Chinese tradition uh when you're having your like a birthday party usually you have the noodle, right? Like a noodle dish. Yeah, I've heard of that. Um I I feel like I've never actually seen that in real life. <laughs> um I know, not even in your family. No, but I I think I told you right. Like we were like our celebrations are not very Chinese. We mm-hmm. we have very Western <laughs> traditions of celebration. But the reason I know is because um like when I go to a restaurant and I look at the menu and like sometimes they have a menu that says like mi ulang tahun and I always mm-hmm. like I remember as a kid I would always like ask like what is mi ulang tahun like what. Like what? How is that different from like regular me? Mm, yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's kind of makes sense that when you're having a birthday, you have like the the noodle because it's long for some yeah for long <laughs> life yeah, and then for 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 like offering food, give them rice yeah yeah I guess yeah I never participated in like in that type of ritual. Yeah, I've never either. I think the first time I participated in a ritual like that was after I moved to New York. So not even like Bellevue and Seattle. Like after I moved to New York, there was this group of Singaporeans and um, they celebrated Lunar New Year. And during the celebration, they they did this thing with this like noodles and fish where they like throw it up um, in the air kind of with chopsticks. Noodle and fish? Maybe not fish. It was like, it was, oh, it was noodles with fish sauce, I think. 
Ah. Uh. And then they throw it up in the air, like they toss it like rame-rame, like um mm-hmm. everyone crowds around the the like big plate and like everyone tosses it up. And I was like, what is this? I've never done this before. But yeah, ha- have you have so you've never participated in in like rituals like that before, but have you like observed similar rituals but in indonesia there's tons of tradition yeah and i feel like i feel like the traditions have also like um what's the word kind of like blended together so it's not um Uh. like like i know in in jakarta it's like very influenced by persian and chinese and it's kind of like blended together already like betawi culture Mm -hmm. um is like a blend of like Chinese, Persian, and Javanese together. Yeah. It's like those, those like, there's so many. And um, there are so many, yeah. And I, and I realized my childhood is very westernized. <laughs> Imperialism. But do you have like a celebration that you like there's is there like a tradition that you celebrate like once a year with your family? Christmas. <laughs> yeah, but but I mean Indonesian way of celebrating Christmas also kind of different. Yeah, yeah. Um maybe it's it's more different like if it's Indonesian Catholic um versus like Western Catholic, but I think if it's like Protestant, it's more similar. Right. Mm, right. Yeah. Because it's more modern. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for listening. And until our next feast, this is Ruth. And this is Alexandra. Mm-hmm.